This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 8, 2020. You are what you eat, and the same is true for plants. We find out how biologists are recognizing how plants may be exhibiting subtle signs that a human body is buried nearby. In the pantheon of local music venues, the good old Elma combo stands tall, and it's about to stand a little taller as it makes its triumphant return. All of this starts now. Fascinating account in the uh, journal Trends in Plant Science. Apparently, some of the forensic scientists at the University of Tennessee are looking into scanning forests with uh, drones because they may be able to locate deceased missing people based on how the trees are growing. What's the connection? Let's find out from the expert. Neil Stewart is a professor of plant sciences with the University of Tennessee and uh, works on their so-called body farm. Uh, Professor Harris, good to have you back uh, on the show. Professor Stewart, rather, my apologies. Good to have you on the program. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. So tell me about this development, because I find it sort of like uh, right out of something CSI-like, and you're working on the body farm. (laughs) Human bodies can... uh, tip you off, or what do you learn from trees about the potential for human bodies being in the vicinity? Yeah, this is, uh, it would be CSI botany, wouldn't it? Hmm. Um, So, you know, the idea in the project has really just started that that when when, when humans decompose, um, their their body fluids and, and, and actually the microbes that are inside go into the soil, and the soil microbiome or the microbes in the soil change, and the plants should be able to change as well. So we're looking at color changes in leaves. And that would be informed by uh, the decomposition of a human body versus an animal body or any body? I mean, uh, what would you look for typically to be able to connect that to a human body decomposing? Well, we're we're still learning. We don't know that. The one thing that we do know is that uh, at least at least in eastern North America, there are not that many large animals that 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 die. And if you know, die in the woods where you can't where you can't fly and actually see the body. So, um, what we're really looking at at this point is is do can we see. Can we see a signature? Can we see a, a color change, some sort of spectral signature in the plants? And, and once we get there, then, then we'll be able to parse out uh, the human versus white, white-tailed deer or something like that. All right. So, uh, again, because there's a certain kind, I don't know if it's DNA, but it's uh, the decomposition, which is, by the way, uh, that's kind of a grisly thing when uh, a body decomposes. What tends to happen where, uh, I guess, it's mostly nitrogen that's released from the decomposition that informs you? Well, so certainly plants, plants have, have some um, particular, particular responses for nitrogen that we, can, that, that we can see. But, you know, there may be other, other things in the, in the human body that comes out that 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 the that the plant responds to maybe drugs you know there are various things that you know that humans have 
inside them that the plants aren't really used to seeing uh, or feeling or what, whatever the plants do. But, you know, responding to, you know, to these signals. And, I mean, surprisingly, people haven't really looked into this. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, maybe surprising, but it's fascinating that uh, one thing uh, can inform another. And so you would scan a forest or whatever with a, a drone and uh, look for changes in tree coloration or one tree may stand out or a, a group of trees from the rest of them that might tell you something lurks below the surface. I'm kind of curious, like what initiated or prompted this study? Well, so I was I was doing, and I still am doing, genetic engineering of plants to act as sensors. So we're genetic. So we're genetically engineering the plants to uh, now change change their color in in a very predictable way. <clears throat> Let's say if they have been attacked by uh, uh, you know bacteria that, that that caused disease, and so. Um, the agency that funded me wanted to see the body farm at the University of Tennessee, which has been, uh, you know, three plus decades of, of, of experience of decomposing bodies. So um, I tagged along on the tour and uh, to keep from uh, kind of passing out because I, I, you know, I plant plant biologists go into plants for all kinds of reasons, but but they don't they don't smell they don't you know when they decompose or whatever so anyway i was i was thinking about how the how the plants might respond while i was holding on to a tree uh, there at the body farm <laughs> right well have any trees been planted over the body farm that you could start to uh maybe identify certain markers that decomposition has informed within that tree well, and so that's the interesting thing is, yeah, when you say body farm, you think of an open field, but it's actually uh, two to three acres of woodland um, very close to the University of uh, Tennessee campus. Um, and so we're looking at the natural, the naturally occurring plants there. We're not doing any genetic engineering of these plants. We're just, we're looking at the spectral changes that, that just occur naturally. Um, and where we'll, we'll go from there. Right. Okay. I'm just wondering if, you know, there's any uh, sort of contemporaneous study of the trees on that farm where the bodies are there. And so, uh, you can start maybe to map out cer certain signatures, I guess you would call it, uh, that may inform you. I mean, and then you've got variables, I'm sure different types of plants or trees may respond differently. Uh, maybe the soil itself is different. I mean, is the, so how, scientifically dialed in could this be as uh maybe some type of evidence that there is in fact a body beneath a tree right i mean so you you bring up some really really good points and and, and things that we worry about which is you know is a is is a hickory is a hickory tree going to have the same uh type of predictable signature as a maple tree you know versus uh, a beech tree and we don't know. Right, right now we're surveying, uh, well, we've mapped out all the species of, 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 of uh, trees on our, and shrubs on our, on our uh, area that we're studying. We also have companion sites with no bodies. And uh, now going through putting, putting uh, uh, donors, as they call them, um, um, who, who donate their body to, to science after they die, Putting those in um, and um, and and then basically letting 
letting the plants talk to us about what's what's going on. Um, and so, you know, we, we so we would actually hope to, 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 to see some, uh, you know, common signals in the in the um, in, in, in the responses among among the types of plants. Well, you know, this is fascinating, yet macabre in a certain sense, because uh, the cadavers there that are donated to science uh, buried in these shallow graves acting more or less as nourishment for the plants as well as fertilizer and the rest. And yet uh, we can draw conclusions from that. You know, and I've heard this said, uh, the CSI forensics, for example, where uh, it's the the level of maggots that have hatched or have not uh, gives you a timeline. And so on. So modern science. Yeah, you're working in the same realm, uh, effectively. It's the and, same, yeah. Yeah, which I find fascinating. Yeah. So uh, hopefully, I mean, this will bear some fruit and perhaps be another chapter to forensics in establishing where, you know, people have been lost. Uh, a lot of cold cases don't know where... You fly over a number of trees or a grove and say, "Aha, uh-huh, let's dig there." Uh, better than sniffing dogs yeah. from the air. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the idea is is is, is just finding a, a potential spot because you know when in, in dense forest you just can't send out a mass a mass of people to search typically. Yeah, well, uh, it's on the vanguard of the latest in plant science, and uh, you're right there. In the catbird seat, uh, Professor Stewart, I appreciate you coming on and uh, giving us, you know, this uh, insight into a fascinating field of study, to say the least. Thanks so much for your time, and good luck going forward. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Professor Neil Stewart, Plant Sciences, University of Tennessee. Well, there you go. It's a little macabre, but uh, <laughs> this is how the scientists work. you got a body farm out at the university. All right. Uh, don't take any shortcuts home from a pub crawl. Mike Wackerly, uh, you might recall one time Dragon's Den star and Enfant Terrible on Bay Street has uh, purchased the Elmo back in 2015, rehabilitated, and he's slated to open this place again on Thursday, and he's joined the Oakley Show to tell us about his excitement. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great, John. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm sitting at Kensington Market right now. And it's very reminiscent of what I think is the whole community really needs to do right now, as we're in a really, uh, you know, crazy time, I think is the best way to put it right now. And we're here now to unify the community with music. Well, okay, a crazy time. I mean, you're not really, uh, you know, foreign to crazy times, Mike. But, <laughs> listen, I mean, this this whole project, <laughs> you know, I got to say, give you props because I saw the virtual tour that you uh, took Jane Stevenson of The Sun on, and uh, it really is an impressive thing that you've done here. What You were into it for about 35 mil, I guess, or is it 40 with the five? Well, I, I like to cap it at 35 mil so I don't look completely crazy, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I like to say 35 million, even though I've supported a lot of artists, I've supported a lot of people in the last six years, and we have a lot of false starts, and we we're supposed to open it April 1st, which I thought was going to be very kind of comical, because April Fool's, but the joke was on me, you know, and COVID hit, and it didn't work out. Uh, so I think that, you know, having this perseverance, is really key for the city, and it's very key for Toronto. It's the Toronto's bar is not really my bar, and I believe that the history of 1948, the Alba really means a lot. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, it's about keeping live alive. And live music has really been the fabric that has created. You know, as growing up on Young Street myself, 
you know, kept me as far as part of the community and part of the, the fabric of the Elba Combo has been a historic place for me. And I'm hoping, you know, with all the closures of the city now, of all the great bars that have been around, whether it be Jerry Stone's Bar or the Rivoli or all the other bars that have shut down in the last little while, that we're able to create uh, a live environment because Toronto's a, a magnificent city. We're a sports city, we're a music city, and we're uh, a destination. You know, you're right about the disappearing landscape for live music venues. I mean, there's even talk Sneaky D's is going to be turned into a condo development. Uh, yeah, college. So yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're really uh, reigniting a flame here because the good old Elma combo as it was. But I mean, 35 million, I've seen it. It's state of the art and it's got everything, a recording studio on the third floor and everything. But can you capture or recapture, well, let's call it the CD charm of the old place? I think I can. We have the Starlight Room, which is the first floor, which is a rock and roll floor. And the second floor is a the theater room. And it's, it, there are two isolated floors, uh, floating floors, uh, soundproofed, and with the best recording. It's, it's really a recording studio that happens to be in the venue. And I think that's one of the things that really attracts me to what live is about. You know, It's about creating something that is going to be a smaller venue. We have a capacity in normal times of about 1,000 people, uh, but in current times we're restricted to 50 people uh, until they open up the legislation and have capacity that could go over and above that. So it, it's, going to be a streaming, it's going to be a streaming community right now at first, and, and we have our first show with this big wreck on Thursday and Ram Riddles on Friday, uh, and we're hosting a TIFF event on Saturday. Uh, I believe that, you know, the one thing that is really key to the city is to start creating a venue. Everyone is used to having everything for free. And I believe that our company is called Artists First, and we want to make sure that artists get paid. You know, we're giving a portion of proceeds to Unison, which is a benevolent charity to the artists. And we want to give money to CAMH, which is about mental health, because... In this time of need, you know, we have to make sure that people understand that we have to give back to the community. And I think that everybody here is is, is, is trying to survive in this time of COVID. And we see the, the, the structure that's going on right now. And it's very difficult for everybody, restaurants and, and bars included. Again, Mike Weckerly is with us, owner of the Elma Combo, and uh, the big grand opening is on Thursday with Big Wreck. You know, it's interesting you talk about, uh, well, giving back and helping out. Part of the legacy of the Elma Combo was also uh, giving artists a shot at sort of breaking through. Uh, first time around in Toronto, I mean, people like Blondie, I think U2 was back in 1980, U2 also broke right. the Elma? You're 100% right. March of 1980, the first show in North America for U2 was in March of 1980. And uh, they they were paid $500 for the venue. And Bono gave us a shout-out the last time he played at the ACC, and he said, we've got a legendary place. And that Toronto should be very proud of that, because I think that one of the key things about Toronto is that it is the what I call the cleaner version of New York City. And I really believe that, you know, Toronto is a place in, in, on an international basis, you know, uh, of, of the top artists right now that have come out of the world these days, probably five of the top ten artists come from Canada. And I really feel proud about that. And I believe that music is one of the things that we have to rely upon right now to create a unification amongst the community.
You know, Mike, when you uh, said we're a cleaner version of New York City, so, I mean, they've got CBGB in the Bowery, but you wouldn't want to use its washrooms. Your washrooms are impeccable. <laughs> well, we did. We, we went from six bathrooms to 32 bathrooms. So I remember the old days where I used to sit there at the Elma Combo and it's hooked up to the sewer systems. I had to dig down the, the venue 28 floors by hand. Not me. I can understand that, you know. I wish it was more technically skilled, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, we had some great people that did everything there. And we created a venue that is now, you know, it's four and a half times the burn rate. I really believe in safety. I believe in the whole situation that we're going through COVID to make sure it's safe for everyone. We did Canada Day, which had 350 people go through the venue over three days, and it was spotless. And I'm very proud about that. And my whole belief is make sure that we have a very safe venue for all participants that come through there. And, you know, God bless that we'll have the uh, environment a lot better off uh, when things open up here. Uh, I don't know when that's going to be. I don't have a crystal ball, but what I do believe is that whatever we do, we're going to do it excellent. You know, I don't think there's a lot of uh, money to be made in live venues right now, but I believe streaming is going to be the key. Well, my, I mean, it's not like you cut any corners here. As we said, 35 mil at the very least, and you got some funky poster art and memorabilia recognizing the legacy and the history and hoping to uh, do the same. I mean, part of that is obviously the Stones. Uh, a lot of people recognize that this was a place that they played a small venue when they were, you know, really at the peak of their power, 1977. My uh, spies tell me you were trying to get the Stones to come back for the, the grand opening of the Elmo? Yeah, so we, we talked to Stones, and we had a great conversation with them. And, you know, what they said to me was that they're going to do the first show, and, and then on their second tour around, they're going to they're gonna reassess because they got paid a significant amount of money uh, by Burles Creek. And that's great. You know, I, and, you know, I understand the music business. But one of the key things is, is that, you know, we're, we are a small venue with streaming, and we have to prove out the streaming platform. Everyone's used to getting things for free. But I think as a community, we have to support artists right now. And if you want the Stones here, we need to have the support. And I'm here to support not just the Elma Combo. I was talking to the Good Brothers who ran the hideout that, unfortunately, they lost their place. Uh, and I'm now opening up to people like that, and the Horseshoe and all the people that I really want to support. Because, you know, we have to be a community now. It's about collaboration, not competition. There you go. As an entrepreneur, uh, really, it's in his DNA. Mike Weckerly, who's kick-starting the Elma Combo after all these years, the renos and everything like that, COVID-19 derailed it. Hopefully we can get through this thing so that uh, it'll be the vibrant, uh, really the heartbeat of Toronto's live musical scene right there at College in Spadina. Mike, good to talk to you. I wish you the best uh, going forward. It's like uh, hey. the pl place looks impeccable. I mean, you left no stone unturned, and uh, hopefully you get the stones back in there at some point. Well, John, I'd love to have a podcast with you, the Elma Combo, and further promote what we're trying to do here in Toronto. And like I said, you know, this is about what we're all doing together. You know, this is about, you know, everybody working together and trying to make sure that we un that everyone understands as a community that we have to do it. And we have to do it on not just a local basis, but a Canada basis and then a global basis because we're a global city here. And I think that the outreach that I have, and i got some great shows coming up, uh, that have been kind of designated for the show. Unfortunately, we don't have the capacity that, we could, that we'd like to have, but at the end of the day here, we need people to support 
what we need to do. And it's not just about the Elma Combo, it's about the whole city. And I really thank you, John, for so much taking the time to do this with us and Chorus and everyone else there. Thank you so much. CBC, everyone, thank you. You got it. Well, somebody said it was going to take a touch of creative madness, and I th- said, Mike Weckerly, he's your guy. <laughs> we'll talk down the road. Mike Weckerly, again, a proud pop of the Elma Combo kickstarting again on Thursday. <laughs> you knew him from Dragon's Den and other projects. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 8, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 